Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our true crime podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will, <laughs> together, will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. Hi, everyone. This is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hi, everyone. This is Deb, your host from Dying to be Found. I do have some co-hosts here to help me out today. We have a married couple from Texas who have a lot to say about true crime. We have Patrick, an ex-cop, and Courtney, a true crime guru from Evil Pudding. Hi, guys. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having us, Deb. We're so excited to be here. I couldn't do this without you. (laughs) This is great. I'm excited that you are here. I'm excited that everybody seems to be taking really nicely to the dash. It's really cool to have you guys. So thanks for being here. No, amazing what you're doing over there. Thanks. Well, before we get started, I wanted to say I'm trying to give my listeners a little taste of some of the podcasts that I listen to. You guys have great storylines. You have great energy. And what I'm doing here on the dash is to bring great podcasters on board, ask you guys a couple questions, and just do a mini story on my own to let you guys help me out with that. We cannot wait. Sorry. (laughs) Well, It's, I think really, we talked about this before we started recording that I would say that our podcasts are a little bit similar in style as far as how Courtney, you and I present the the storyline. Yes. And it's really cool to meet people that I wouldn't otherwise know. So this is really good. I haven't had any awkward silences yet. So that's really good. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nothing that'll be a problem with us. We're no. talkers. Yeah. Good. I do want to warn you guys. I have had a few tears or two. Mainly I get those from my daughter, Shelby, but I have yeah. possibly had some fellow podcasters tear up a little bit. So just warning. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen today, but okay, it's we're the nature of the business. I mean, we're talking about people's lives that were taken tragically and a lot of times right. horrifically. So yeah, it, it happens on our end too. You just don't see us because. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And also we can edit it out. Yeah, we can edit it out so you don't hear Peltier. Yeah, I get it. So I've got a small list of interview questions for you guys. And most of them are standard questions about your podcast, but I do like to throw in maybe one or two to switch things up. So my first question is of all hobbies that you as a married couple are going to do together. Why a true crime podcast? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I I guess I'll take that one. That's usually me that answers that. So (laughs) I think it was like towards the end of COVID or COVID had just started winding down and people were starting to go back out, but there still wasn't a lot to do. And, yeah. you know, she's amazingly staying at home with the kids all the time. She takes care of them so well. And I'm at work. And then she's like, I want to do something. So we we're just joking around. She's been listening to podcasts. I hadn't really listened to any other than like Joe Rogan at that point. And she <laughs> was like, let's do a podcast. I'm like, you know what? Cool. I, we can figure it out. I mean, I work 
I got a big tech for a living. So it's like, I can figure out the tech side of it. Let's do it. And then we, we, we did. We, she, she wrote up an episode and we jokingly, if you ever listened to our first one, we were like, hey, we'll probably have your mom and my mom listen to this. And they don't even They listen. have never listened to it. <laughs> uh, and then it just kind of, we kind of fell in love with it after we did one. We, we tried to do, I, I was skeptical, like, oh, we're going to do one or two, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we did a first one and I was like, this is kind of fun. Yeah, and it just became fun. it became time for me and her to spend together yeah. every week. Date night. It, it almost is like a yeah. date night. It's like we we have time that we slot every week to spend mm-hmm. together and just kind of you know, have a couple of drinks, talk about a story. I do my silliness on there if you if you will, uh, and then it's just that's how it kind of started and just kind of evolved from there. That's amazing. My my date night with my husband is to go out to the Mexican restaurant once a week. But oh, no, uh, podcasting is cool too. <laughs> yeah, we do that too. It just we just kind of enjoy spending time doing it together, and it just kind of worked out that way. Yeah, it's fun. So, what have you guys learned from each other doing this podcast? How much she can research? Holy crap! Do you have a research background, Courtney? I do not have a research background. I should, <laughs> but I do not. Um, it's just her personality. I, yeah, it's just my I. Once I hone in on something, she locks in. I lock in, and um, it's it's just my personality. I'll I'll become kind of an expert on something. But you couple that with the the empathetic side of her. She she really wants to make sure everything she does is, especially the victims and people that still survive some of these stories. She wants right. to make sure she doesn't upset them or, or say been, the wrong thing or you know. Yeah, that's been our our number one concern. Is at first I said I was only going to do the cases like Ted Bundy, you know, the bigger cases that are always covered. And then there was a few cases that fell into my lap where I was asked to cover where the victims are very much still alive and active on social media. And it's been a huge deal as we've grown a little bit to maintain integrity and in telling the story. It's not easy to do, you know, as you know, there's yeah, there's a lot of ethics involved, and I know that's really kind of controversial. There's a lot of people out there saying, are you trying to make money off of it? I personally, even if I were to make money, I've got buy me a coffee. If you guys want to donate, I've gotten one or two donations, not a ton. But if I were to make money, I would totally put that towards. I've already got some not-for-profits that I'm looking at. So if it ever comes to that, I don't think it ever will. And that is okay. That's okay. Yeah. And just bringing awareness and making sure that we are telling factual events and things like that, but also being respectful, especially for those people that are still, you know, out there and living their life. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing where we, that's the thing that we kind of talked about behind the scenes when we were doing it is, yeah, we want to tell these stories, but we want to tell them not to remember the monster. Right. But we want to remember the people that were affected by the mom. Yes. Yes. And I don't touch too much on the big name cases. Right. I'm going to contradict myself in just a little while because you'll see why. But (laughs) I am going to contradict myself a little bit, but it's not really about that person. It's about other people. So we try not to. But like she said, it's a lot of people like, hey, you guys need to cover this. Okay, we'll cover that because everyone's at like Patreons or friends. Mm -hmm. Hey, cover that. We're like, okay. Okay. Or she tried to find the ones that are just like, Never heard of it, ever. (laughs) Well, I'll give you an example. I listened. You guys did the Black Dahlia. Yes. So did I. But I didn't know that you guys did Black Dahlia. Right. And there were so many things in your episode that your perspective was completely different from mine. And that's the cool thing. You can listen to the same story, but everybody has a different perspective. Especially like like that one or like the one where doing this week we just recorded the other day for we're doing lizzie borden mm-hmm. um those unsolved ones are so much 
fun to do with other podcasts or listen to other people because they're unsolved. So right. this is literally speculation what happened. And everyone has their own opinion based on what they understand or what they think. So it's, it, those ones are always fun. I like to bring cases up that are unsolved because it always keeps it on the table and it always keeps the visibility there. Right. So, I mean, it works for you in most cases. So, yeah, there's so many different ways. Well, what time of day do you guys record? When do you guys find yourselves most productive how does that work well it, definitely evenings it's evenings we try to stay away from the weekends because our weekends are hectic with all the kids um so it's usually later in the week whenever she's ready you know wednesday thursday mm -hmm. friday ish right and then it's, i you know, i still have a job so i'm gonna do it when i get home so yeah we're not paying <laughs> the bills with this no, quite not yet, yet. No. not yet do you guys record the same day every week we try to it's it's usually towards the end of the end of the week i would say it really depends on the honestly it depends on the kids schedule yeah it's usually thursday or friday it just depends on which one's more hectic and who's running all over right. the place that day right and yeah we are to answer your question we're i am personally much more productive on a podcast level in the evenings that after i have everything done everybody spent every <laughs> when you can relax and you yeah, can just kind of get into it. yeah you're not yeah. worried about people going here and there or work or, or right. cleaning this or cleaning that or whatever True. I think my daughter deals a lot with that right now. Me personally, I have two dogs and a husband at home. So yeah, I got lots of time on my hands. Well, hey, that, that's work. <laughs> that is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> How do people react when they find out you're a true crime podcaster? I think we have different um, experiences. So you go ahead. You go first. Uh, it, it's always why? Like how? Like what? If, but if they know us, <laughs> they know her and how much of a true crime, you know, horror fanatic she is literally my phone case is literally, phone case all is literally the movies. <laughs> i have this awesome water bottle but i'm yeah. missing a sticker i think well, oh yeah we can take care of that don't worry take care <laughs> yeah it's, they, if they know us they know that me being an ex-cop ex-military and her you know being a true crime fanatic it makes sense but most people are just like really why and we're like oh, we tried it and we don't love with it. I don't know what else to tell you. It is good. It's so much fun. And then everybody that you meet along the way. I don't know if you guys have been to CrimeCon yet, but there's a lot of talk. More, more the one week. in September. Is yeah. that the one in Florida? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Shelby and I are yep. talking about going there too. We might meet up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What topics do you guys decide to cover? Is this a joint effort? Courtney, do you come and just say, okay, this is what we're doing today? It's a joint effort sometimes. Sometimes Pat will do a patisode, as we call it, where he tells me a story and he finds those topics on his own. And he usually blows me away with it. But I, probably 75% like, of the time it's her. I like to surprise him if I can. There's sometimes I, I just can't keep it away because. Uh, and that's how we, that was our whole premise in the beginning is you were telling a story yeah. that I had no idea about right. that I was trying to react to as we're doing it. But then obviously when people are like, hey, covers Lizzie Borg, it's like, okay, I know that. Yeah, we always give our Patreon members first crack. If they recommend it, we'll cover it. And I have this, this one Patreon member who became a friend, and she finds these cases that have just destroyed me. And she has just become a resident content creator. She's crazy. I mean, she comes up with you've never even seen, and then you hear the story, and you're like, how do I never know this story? You can't sleep at night kind of, kind of cases. If you haven't heard the episode about uh, our satanic panic, that is, I'm very close. I am a binge listener. I just have to start from beginning to end. And I know that one's coming up. Yeah. Right. Right. In that, that case, I still lose sleep. Oh, in yes. that one. That, 
something else. But um, yeah, so I I usually have these cases that, you know, I feel are huge, but very little known. And that was kind of how I started. Not many people talk about it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and then it kind of evolved into, you know, people recommending cases and, and if, going from there. And, you know, as soon as you start getting people recommending, everyone's going to be like, hey, I want to hear Ted Bundy. Hey, right. I want to hear Ed Gein. Hey, yes. I want to hear so-and-so. You're like, OK, well, we'll do it. Yeah. But what she does, like joked about it when she does it, it's like four episodes for her to do one of those because she goes mm -hmm. so deep. In. And so you're the same way with yours. When yeah. you do one of those well-known ones, you want to get everything. Yes. Yeah, you want to you want to give people something that they didn't know. They, we, exactly. we all know Ted Bundy. Okay, what's something that they they didn't know? About, that's that's about what him. she takes from it the most is at the end of every episode, especially if it's like even like Lizzie Borden that we just recorded. She'll ask me, and she's like, "Did you did you know all that?" And I'm like, "Hell no!" And she's like, "Okay, good." Okay. <laughs> that's an, uh, one of the things that I've discovered as well is that even if it's an older case, there's still information to be found. Newer articles, even as early as 2022, even 2023, you can still get additional information yeah. based on the, when it was, was first in the news. Yeah. So yeah, that's the cool part about it. One cool thing I, I thought about Lizzie Borden, not to go too much on a tangent, but I have an 18-year-old and we sat down and we watched a movie together uh, about Lizzie Borden. And she said, wait, wasn't Lizzie Borden a child? And I said, no, girl, she was in her mid-30s when this happened. And she said, what? Because she's depicted, and I didn't realize this, she's depicted a lot as a child. Or early 20s or very, very young. Right, right. I, she was single and lived at home. So, and I guess that would make it much more interesting, right? And it kind of, it kind of gets, uh, it's like folklore, um, you know? Uh, facts get lost over the years it's really cool it's cool to break down old cases like that i love it, it really is and that's the stuff i'm talking with my sister beth about mm -hmm. this season and i know that's on the list i did one recently i did a um an episode recently and then i had a listener say hey you did that one can you please do this one so i pushed that no. one because it's been heard a lot but right. it'll it'll come down the pipeway sooner or later yeah Oh, absolutely. And it's always fun to learn new things about the case. Yeah. So what is your favorite episode? Do you have one? I have one. You know my favorite episode. What is it? I know. I guess. The Runaway that... Devil? Oh, that yeah. That is a case that I heard yeah. last year before we did it. And it has just. Jasmine Richard. I don't know. It yeah. has just okay. stuck with me to the fact that just the whole case in itself. And then the fact that at 23 years old, she was completely off parole, completely back in the world. And no one even knows where she is now. And she killed the whole entire family to include her eight-year-old brother, and she's just out on the streets. Yeah, you know that one's that one's probably my favorite, just because the, that case. And she can tell you, we heard somebody else cover it at one point, and it's just been stuck with me ever since I heard about it. Right, crazy. I think like, my favorite case would have to be ooh, if I had to guess. I don't know if I could even pinpoint it down I to one you'd say favorite case. Interkaifek, just because you like saying that one. Interkaifek. Uh, maybe Hinterkaifex right up there. That's baffling to me. Any of our old timey cases are my favorite. And I know they, they don't do as well, but for me, they, they're so much fun to go back. That's just fascinating to me. If I could do that only, I would be happy. All right. I'm going to throw one at you here. If you were to have a last meal, what would it be? I know what I, I know what mine would be easy. Cause I've, I've actually had this conversation with people. It would be chicken fried steak and white gravy, the country gravy, and mashed potatoes with the white gravy on it, of course. 
Oh, wow. And then it would be cherry Pop-Tarts and ice cream. Yum. <laughs> that sounds delicious. No vegetable. I didn't, I didn't hear a vegetable, though. Did I hear a vegetable? If we're dying, we don't need vegetables. <laughs> we don't need vegetables if we're dying. That's true. How about you, Patrick? I don't, mine would be like a whole buffet. I don't know. The buffet? I'm going have like raisin canes, chicken fingers out there. Uh, steak, <laughs> loaded mashed potatoes. Okay. Yeah. So nice hearty meals over there. Is that what you eat in Texas? I want to eat. I think it's the Irish in me. That's, that's all I ever Yeah. I don't know. I could, I could literally live on mashed potatoes. So I... Same, actually. <laughs> all right. Is there anything else that you guys want our listeners to know about Evil Pudding? Or you guys, Patrick, Courtney? No, definitely just check us out. We're I mean, happy to be here. Then check us out. Where can we check you out? We have our Instagram is Evil Pudding. Is it podcast? I need to go back and check. Evil Pudding Podcast. And... And on our Patreon, also under the same name. And we're on Spotify. We're on iHeart. And if you go to our, our Instagram, has links to all the all the things we have. It has links yeah. to Spotify, has links to we Patreon, or email, everything on there. So. so go to Instagram at Evil Pudding Podcast and find everything else right there in the one spot. Yes. Or you can right put, there at and, your and email is Evil Pudding Podcast at Gmail. So yeah, if you want to email there for information. Case recommendations. We have a case rec forum that you can recommend cases and we will do them. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I've learned so much about you and that's amazing. You guys are great. I can't wait to hear your next episode. Are you ready to get into my mini story here? We are ready. Let's we're ready for the meat and potatoes. All right. We talked about a few high-profile cases. I personally do not do a ton of those. I've done a couple, but we are going to touch on one today. And when I say we're just going to touch on it, it's really not about this person. That's your little hint on the direction we're going here. And hopefully you'll pick up on who this is because I will go into it just a little bit. But let me start by giving you some information on another case. Okay. You'll see where I'm going with this because I'm not going to be making today's episode about one of the victims of the high-profile case, and um, we'll just go from there. So here we go. In June 1979, a young white male was discovered deceased with multiple shotgun wounds in the greater San Francisco area of California. Investigators named him John Doe number 89, and they would spend the next 36 years trying to give him an identity. So one of these cold cases... But what we're going to do here is we're actually going to fast forward to 2011. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Because it went that long without having an identity and there was not a lot of information to go on in this case, but we'll get there. We're going to fast forward into 2011 where Sheriff Tom Dart from the Chicago area police decided to revisit some old cold cases from way back in the 1970s. Do you guys have any idea what was going on? in Chicago during the 1970s regarding true crime. Do you have an idea? I'm racking my I'm stuck brain. stuck in California missing people the decade of the scene. So when I was doing my research, I too was trying to make this connection, but uh, we're going to concentrate on Chicago right now because there was a very famous serial killer who was very active around that time in Chicago. Have you heard of John Wayne Gacy? Yeah, I was about to say no. that name. Yeah. I was about to say that's why I was making that face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a face one. Is it Gacy? 
Yeah. If anybody's not familiar with him, he is definitely a high profile serial killer. He's the infamous clown killer who went by the name of Pogo, Pogo the Clown. Yes. He's probably one of the top 10 most famous serial killers in the U.S. Mm. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I know. I saw a documentary on him. It is, oh, he just blended in. Oh, he's monster. Horrible. Mm -hmm. He killed 33 young men and teenage boys between 1972 and 1978. 33. Got away with it for that long. I don't know why, but she said Chicago. I went to H.H. Holmes, even though it was like a decade or like a century later. I'm like, well, not the seven. Yeah. Well, Gacy went on to be executed in 1994 for these crimes. And when he met his fate, eight of those 33 young men or boys had not yet been identified. So that's the direction that we're going with this today. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Gacy here, but you'll see the connection as we go along. Okay. In 2011, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart reopened the Gacy case in hopes of making headway for those eight victims that were unnamed in this case. Dart's office made a public appeal to anyone to come forward if they had a loved one who met the profile of Gacy's victims, which was young, missing white males that may have gone missing from the Chicago's north side area during the 1970s. Kudos to him for getting out there and reopening all this. Absolutely. If it wasn't for him, I mean, who knows? Oh, just wait. Oh, what? (laughs) All right. So I mentioned Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart's office requested that eight of Gacy's unidentified victims would be exhumed in the hopes that they could be identified through DNA testing. And that's something that I talk a lot about on this mini series, The Dash. So, I mean, again, we said so many things come up decades after the case. And in this case, Sheriff Dart wanted to see if he could get more answers. DNA was pretty established by then. That was the direction he was going in. Within weeks of the bodies being exhumed, one of the eight victims was identified as a William George Bundy. And William was initially given the name victim number 19 until his sister came forward after Sheriff Dark's public plea. I'm going to tell you up front, this is not the young man that went missing at the beginning of this episode, but you'll see how all this goes into play. I was wondering if it was. Yeah. One of the things I like to do, and I just, this is me personally, I just feel like these victims have to have names. They have to have voices. I just didn't want William George Bundy to be just, I, I needed for him to be a piece of this case. Your number 19 for the rest of the time? Right. Yes, exactly. He was a person. He had a family. Yeah. And his sister came forward after Sheriff Dart's public plea. She had provided familial DNA that helped to identify him. So good for her. Amazing. That kind of puts things into perspectives for me because you had just mentioned Patrick, victim number 19. Yeah, William needed a name here. But then again, 19, that's a big number. It's a large number. Yeah. Yeah. William was a 19-year-old young man who had gone missing in October 1976 when he just went out for a party. He was just a typical teenager doing his thing. He had forgotten his wallet at home. So when he left the party to retrieve it, he was never seen again. Oh, gosh. Just a victim of circumstance. He probably never would have left the party and would never have been picked up by Gacy. 
didn't do anything wrong living his life. I know. And so I have to sit here. These are just extra things I think about. Like, where did they cross paths? Absolutely. Was he, What do you know if he was walking or was he driving? Very little information was out there, but... I did find that when he was approached or whenever they did come across each other, authorities do believe that William had been lured by Gacy under the premise of coming to work for that construction company that we all know that he worked with. That was Gacy's MO at the time. So, of course, you're 19 years old. You're going to make good money. Of course, you're going to be lured in. Vile creature. Oh, yep. Well, this is where I'm going to stop talking about Gacy now because, in my opinion, he's gotten way too much publicity. But you will see how this connects in just a minute, which is really the good part of this entire story. We're going to go back to John Doe number 89 back in California. And he was the young man that was found shot to death in San Francisco. Based on Sheriff Dart's public plea to identify Gacy's eight victims... It took another three years before one family member came forward to report that her half-brother, Andre, or Andy Drath, fit Gacy's victim profile. I mean, I say good for Sheriff Dart for keeping that campaign alive that long. He really put a lot of of effort into this. And this is... After Gacy had been executed as well. Yes. Well, 15 so, years after I Gacy's mean, this is a solved case. He's just doing this to give these families some, I, I don't know the word closure, but. It is closure. I don't use that word too much. I, I just say give answers because answers. still something they have to, they have to live with. At least they can, they can at that point say, this is what happened and not just sit there and wonder right. for 20 years, whatever happened. They, they, it's, it's horrible that some of these families, they just don't know yeah. what happens to their loved ones. Yeah. And that's worse. That's worse. Because so like you're you said, in limbo. You yeah. have hope. At least they have an answer at this point. So now yeah. they can process. Because you can't really process and deal if you don't ever know. Like, do I warn them? Are they still alive? Did they run away? Right. Unanswered questions. And and two, they probably have a grave to go to. That in itself is probably helpful. Absolutely. There's just too many unanswered. I don't know. I'm not there. I don't know how to. I would process that. Putting even again, put myself in the, the situation. I would literally be hunting for 20 years. <laughs> I would be drawing a load. I see that, Patrick. All right. Now, Dr. Willa Wertheimer, Andy's younger half-sister, came forward after Dart turned the campaign into pretty much, honestly, a probably a manhunt of sorts, came forward to report that she had last seen Andy in Chicago between late 1978 or early 1979. This is still when Gacy was active. And he had plans of moving between Chicago, Illinois, and San Francisco, California. So Willa submitted her DNA to investigators in 2014, which was then entered into the combined DNA index system, which is also known as CODIS. For our listeners, that's a federal DNA database that cross-references DNA with unidentified victims or unsolved cases. We love CODIS. We talk about it all the time. It's a game changer, especially when you talk about the 70s with all the... We- Especially we wish it was around. <laughs> and there were so many serial killers active in California and so many Jane and John Doe's popping up everywhere. So one of the things that Willa had said is her, she had a public plea was for anybody who has a family member who might be missing. She says, go get your DNA, have it sent off to the CODIS, and maybe that'll open up or at least solve some more cases. I don't know how I feel about that. How do you guys feel about that? See, it's hard for me to have a negative feeling only because so many cases have been solved with familial DNA with the Golden State Cards. Do you remember how huge that was? 
when it was 12 years later and uh, and he was old when he got put away for that but i get the other side of it i, mean, I do a lot the of these are 70s and 80s and these yeah. families that have actually moved on want to go relive that trauma right of their loved one disappearing 20 30 40 years ago do you really want to bring that all because you're talking about parents that are probably now 60 70 years old kids that are you know they moved on with life so it's it's a double-edged sword it, it can be a double-edged sword but. so true it, it is it's super useful to solve these cases and put some of these monsters away who other he would have died the golden state killer with without ever have been found out well in may 2015 the results from dr wertheimer's dna sample came back and it was not a match to any of gacy's victims but it was a match to that young male who died of the multiple gunshot wounds in San Francisco in 1979. This is Andy Drath, her half-brother, and she had not seen him in 36 years when they discovered who he was. Oh, wow. Well, let's talk about Andy for just a moment. Mm -hmm. He was initially raised by a single mother who eventually married and had a baby girl who was Willa, Andy's half-sister. Goodness. Love that name, by the way. I know. That's so sweet. Well, unfortunately, Andy's mom passed away when he was very young and he was sent away to live with his grandfather. Now, Andy apparently did not take his mother's death very well because he suffered from a lot of problems while he was growing up. As he was getting older, I can't imagine losing a parent at that age that, again, I've never been in that situation, but I can imagine, if, especially if you're close. The only parent, too. That's yeah. the only parent. Exactly. That's what I was thinking when I was reviewing this this morning. I was like, oh, poor child. I know. We essentially orphaned at that point. Mm -hmm. Well, Andy's grandfather was unable to manage Andy's troublesome behavior as he got older. So when he was 14 years old, Andy's grandfather put him in foster care. He just couldn't handle him anymore. Right. By June 1979... Andy was 16 years old and actively attempting to get guardianship transferred over to California at the time that he disappeared. So I'm thinking I was not able to find any information on this. Was he trying to locate his dad? I couldn't find any articles in that, but if he was trying to get guardianship, that's all I can kind of assume. I don't like to assume too much. Now, here's another thought, and I don't know, he could have possibly run away, told his sister he was going to get guardianship and just run away from foster care. You guys hear about those stories as well. Well, Lord knows what happened to him in foster yeah. care, too. I mean, I mean it's, oh, it's just a horrible, sad situation. You hear horror around. stories of foster care in general, but especially, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, back in June 1979, when Andy was discovered in California, Several tissue samples were collected and preserved during his autopsy. Good. The medical examiner also took Andy's dental records, plus made note of a little tattoo that he had reading Andy, which was later identified by his sister Willa. So that was how he was identified later. And in this instance, Andy was ruled out as one of John Wayne Gacy's victims, but it was Gacy's case that helped to identify him when Sheriff Dart made his appeal to the public. Wow. Oh, yeah. She came forward because of that. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I know. Hail Mary, like, hey, maybe it is. The stars lined up, though. I mean, it was. They did. I, I have goosebumps. And this is why I brought Gacy into this for just a second, because if it weren't for Sheriff Dart, Poor Andy would still probably be number 89. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. 
After receiving closure on her brother's disappearance, that's the word I'm going to use. I don't particularly like it, but in this instance, this is when Willa did come forward to say, hey, if you do have missing people or missing family members, please consider going and getting your uh, submitting your DNA to CODIS. You can at least get an answer to find out if they are deceased or not. Yeah, and I definitely see her point. Yeah. Well, since Sheriff Dart reopened the Gacy case in 2011, several victims have been identified and not all of them were even related. Just like with Andy Drath, not all of them were related to the Gacy case. Several more family members came forward, just like Willa had done. Five additional cases of missing persons were solved by locating them alive and well, reuniting them with their families. And there's no mention as to the circumstances of why they went missing or anything like that. That's irrelevant. It's just basically I'm thrilled these cases got called. They're alive and well. Absolutely. Right. That's an interesting point because if you, if you, you know, obviously you've done a lot of research on cases in that time period. How many in the 70s, especially in California, did these kids go hitchhiking and missing and the cops didn't do anything? They're like, they just ran away. Yes. How many times did you do that? All those cases when you're talking about, you know, any of those killers in the second, I can't even think of what time, any of the 70s killers in, well, in yeah, California. Well, our Ed Kemper case recently, you know, they, they interviewed a, a bunch of policemen today that were policemen back then. And it, they were bagging kids on college campuses because that's how you got from point A to point B. You hitchhike, you know. Yeah, they were, you know, supplying shuttles. They were like, you got to stop doing this. And when all the parents would go to the cops, they're like, my kid wouldn't do this. They're like, hey, this is what kids do. They, they'll, they'll show up. They still say that today. So I did an episode on Brandon Swanson. I think he was at a party and he was probably 19 years old. Same thing. It is all about the police saying, ah, they're old enough. They'll, they'll come home. Just give them 24 hours. I think there's laws in place now that basically say that, hey, we can't wait that 24 hours, especially if it's a younger child or, you know, even a young adult. Definitely if it's a younger child. Yeah, yeah. there's certain circumstances depending on the age and, and- I also recently, because I asked somebody about it, and they they said that it it varies from well state to state is different state to state. So and it's also situational. Too. There are states that will make you wait twenty four hours to see if they turn up. And it's just that that it's got to stop. That's I know <laughs> Texas is not one of those states. I, I can tell you, just driving to work all the time, you have those billboards up, and they're yeah. uh huh. The alerts are Amber alerts. Yes. blasted all over right. as soon as they happen. Right. They say that a lot of the criminals that take these people, they turn themselves in very quickly because they see their names up there, their license plate number up there. Oh, yeah. You're annoying because they see all their information being blasted everywhere. They and they're like, I'm going to get caught anyway. Yeah. So I just need to. And we need more of that. We can't wait 24 hours, especially with children. And we need to listen to the families. If, you know, a mom or a dad or a they brother, know the kid best. they know their kid. I know that my kid's not going to run away. They're, you know. Don't tell me that this is what kids do. That... My kid doesn't do this kind yeah. of thing. Absolutely. I mean, you you know your own kids. Yeah. I tend to judge law enforcement in a lot of these cases, being ex-law enforcement. Yeah. There's so many, so many missteps are made that would have prevented mothers and, you know, all these horrific crimes down the line if they had just done their job at the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's one of the hating. most frustrating things dealing with true crime. And I'm sure you've come across those. Yeah. Whereas if. The cops have done the right thing on the first victim or the first incident. Like, okay, how many times is this? There are kids that were murderers when they were 16, 17, and they're like, eh, they were formed at 19. Like, how is that possible? And their original record is expunged. Oh, my God. That was the, with temper. That's the and Jasmine just, Richardson one that drives me nuts. Oh, it just. The youngest, youngest multiple murderer in Canada's history is free at 23. 
Not even on parole. Makes you want to spit nail. Yeah. So back to the good news here. Five additional cases of missing persons were solved by locating additional missing persons, reuniting them with their families. Two more missing person cases were solved, but authorities discovered this a little bit too late. They had already died of natural causes over the years, but it just goes to show you that as persistent as they were, they actually got the closure that families were looking for. Four unrelated cases were also solved, including that of Andy Drath. So ultimately, it's somewhat bittersweet to me. I hate saying his name. Gacy's case helped to solve all of these other cases. I was about to say, you got to look at it. There was some good from that monster. Yes. Because well, not from him, but from from him. But from his case of being a monster, somebody else looked at it and was like, maybe I can fix or find something from it. And it's some good thing about it. He wasn't going to offer up the information. Yeah, absolutely. One thing about him I always said is, you know, if you watch interviews with Bundy, he at least, or Kemper, you can say horrible people, but they had a charm where you could see how you would be, you would fall for that, you know, and feel safe in their presence. And they all have that same temperament or persona or something. They do something about, but me, Gacy just looks like, or or would he speak like Pogo the Clown? Yeah. He's just insulting. He's demeaning. Yeah. Well, we don't like. Well, if you guys have heard enough of my little dash series here, you'll know that that's it. I'm done. That's the story of Andy Drath. That's a good story, though. That was amazing how the two correlated and how we could look at something positive to come from such a reprehensible human situation. Mm -hmm. So that was amazing. Well, if our listeners have any information or believe that your relatives were victim to John Wayne Gacy, please call the Cook County Sheriff's Office at 708-865-6244. Well, Courtney and Patrick, I loved being here with you today. This was so great. I love meeting new people. You guys are amazing. I highly recommend Evil Pudding to our listeners here. And I try to look everybody up. And to be honest with you, I can't find a ton of information other than the internet taking me directly to your podcast or your Instagram and things like that. So I did find your Instagram at Evil Pudding Podcast. I also found Twitter at Evil Pudding Pod plus stream wherever it is that you guys get your podcasts. You definitely need to go check out Patrick and Courtney at Evil Pudding. Right. Love to have you. Be sure to write in and let me know what you think of DB2F, the dash. Click on the links in our show notes to find out more about this podcast, your hosts, and our social medias. If you are a true crime podcaster and want a chance to highlight your own podcast, email me at dyingtobefound at gmail.com for more information. Thanks for listening to Dying to Be Found. Before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying to Be Found. You can access our website, email, social media, and storyline request form by clicking on our Linktree account found in our show notes. If you like our episodes, consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be failed, spelled just like you see it on our logo. Feel free to message us on Instagram and let us know how we're doing or if you'd like a sticker. With that, be sure to check us out every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. We will talk to you all next week. Bye.